Yes. Do you like horror movies? Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you. Because MVD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now, genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well for some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. In addition, Rue Morgue will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Gober, director of programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to say. <laughs> strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with MVD Entertainment Group and Genre Champions Rumor Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumor Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELESS SHAMELESS! SHAMELESS! We have our own promo code! Yes, you heard me, you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months. That's just insanity to me. So, once again, go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T Shameless. No spaces. No spaces. All one word. Shameless. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. I'm a rather boring individual. I don't, oh, you me know, too. I, I don't have all that much going on. I don't know why all you pe- I understand why you listen to Michael. I don't understand why you all listen to me. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to gather anecdotes for this moment so that when you ask me how I am, my, my instant reaction of just, oh, <laughs> Everything's horrible, and I want to go sleep for four days straight. Is the first thing is that terrible. comes up? <laughs> um, so I I came up with an anecdote to tell the other day because I was fuming. Well, by the other day I mean like two and a half months ago, and every time I forgot to actually say it. So I remembered <laughs> this time to tell you my anecdote. So um, we just came across our one year anniversary of living in the house that we bought. Uh, Congratulations. In, in Ridgely. Um, beautiful house. Very cool. Cute little neighborhood. One problem with the town is we have a bunch of, like, street cats. Like... That... Okay. <laughs> like, hobo cats that just live 
on the streets in our little town. Yes. Um, one of them, I'm assuming it's one, it might be multiple of them. We, so our, our house is like a two story Victorian, but one, one of the first floor rooms doesn't have a room above it. So it's okay. There's one part of the house that has roof, you know, on the first floor. And there's a window that overlooks that at the top of our staircase. So walked up and you can okay. look out and you can see the side yard and the backyard. And it's kind of nice. And I started noticing that one of those fucking cats is using that part of the roof as its litter box. <laughs> and it makes me so mad. <laughs> I go up there and there's cat crap on our roof. <laughs> What a weird place for cat crap. If, if it had been anywhere else on any other part of the roof, I wouldn't be able to see it. It's like it's taunting me with it. It's like, yeah, I own this house, bitch. <laughs> so what are you going to do about your cat, cat cat crap and hobo cat problem? Nothing. I mean, eventually I'll clean it, but I haven't wanted to do that yet. <laughs> Amanda says, we have stray cats leaving dead rats in our yard. So realistically, <laughs> you're doing a much better than uh, than we are. I we always, have we we used to I, I grew up on a lot of farms and things and so we tended to have like barn cats, right? And they would leave like mouse kidneys and things on our back porch and like that felt yeah. like a gift. That felt like, <laughs> "Hey, I taught this. This is for you. This is my, you know, my payment for letting me hunt mice here. The cat crap is an FU. That's what that is." <laughs> So did I ever tell you, uh, back when me and Amanda were living with my mom for a little bit, it's right when she first moved in, or when Amanda first moved in, and, uh, oh yeah, Amanda says, uh, they leave whole rats. <laughs> just whole well, that's, rats. that's extra generous. They didn't even take They just part. kill them and just leave them. <laughs> when, Amanda first moved, when Amanda first moved into the house, so I'd never had a, a cat growing up. My mom was afraid of them. And now she's got two of them, so... <laughs> She likes uh, to our, live in fear. Amanda's cat Massimo changed her. Um, <laughs> so Massimo, when we first moved in, moved in, got to go explore in our basement, in my mom's basement. She let leave the door open. He just can go down there, and it's a playground for him. And there's one point, uh, and I never never thought this would be a thing because I never had cats. Uh, one point, uh, he went down to the basement, and we were just watching a movie, and he came upstairs and was like, "What's in his mouth?" And he's just looking at us and opens his mouth and a baby mouse falls out. And it's it's just scurrying around and he's sitting there watching us try to catch it. And like me and Amanda still have a theory that like he brought it as a gift for us. And it's yeah. like, you guys like you guys suck at this. And it just reminds me of too of like <laughs> Let uh, me help. an article it reminds me of an article that Amanda read one time about cats, like and their their thought process. And cats don't apparently meow to each other very often they meow for us and they meow for us because they think we are large stupid cats and that's how they have to communicate with us because they can communicate with each other just fine they we don't hey, understand dumb them. dumb so it's like so i imagine he brought us this mouse and he's like oh wow the large stupid cats can't catch the mouse mm-hmm so we were like pulling out the furniture and everything and trying to catch this mouse he's just sitting there and be like you gotta suck at do, this. Do I have to do everything for you? <laughs> so that's how I am. I am yeah. cat, cat crap on the roof. How are you? 
Well, I'm doing better than that because I don't have cat crap in the roof. But I might have dead dead rats dead, in the back. Dead rat. I don't know. I've not been Whole back there. Dead rats. Yeah. <laughs> I just love too that we're doing we're doing an episode of Meet Me in St. Louis and just like I just look at us as like we don't seem like the type of guys who'd be talking about Meet Me in St. Louis in my in my WrestleMania six T shirt and, and my ye old curiosity shop shirt. Yeah. But here we are. We're gonna sweater. talk about Meet Me in St. Louis. <laughs> So we, um, we are extremely there cultured, and yeah. we have diverse tastes. Yeah, we do. Warning: This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements: endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. My mouse is freaking out and I can't seem to get it scrolled over Nick's mic. And there we go, he's unmuted. Now. I got it. <laughs> I, I handled it for you. <laughs> oh, you can you can unmute yourself? I can. You can mute me, oh. but I can unmute me. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I, I, was took, like, I took that power away from you. <laughs> My my mouse was like spasming out, and like I kept trying to scroll, and it just kept going everywhere but where I wanted to take it. Um, so hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Viers, and with me, as always, is a man who demands we all have ourselves a merry little Christmas, as it could be our last. <laughs> Nick Richards. <laughs> Fun little piece of trivia for you. That was the original line in the song. Oh, okay. You, yeah, I, that was... The, I knew they oh, rewrote it. That Yes. Um, the story goes that that was the original... It was, have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It could be your last. Uh, tom- starker. Yeah, hold on. I want to get the original words. Original, <laughs> have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It sounds words. more like a track from Black Christmas. Oh. <laughs> can't find these the second verse the second verse was something along the lines well you know come tomorrow we could all just be living in the past or some shit like that and pretty much judy heard the lyrics and she's like yeah that's a no out of me yeah i'm not singing that because if i have to sing that to little margaret o'brien she's probably gonna fucking cry because i'm a terrible person change that lyric or go murder another one of their neighbors (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and so that's the that's the uh so I chose to go with that for our intro. It's nice. Um, and if I didn't bury the weed enough, on today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show, we're discussing a film right out of the annals of film history. A film considered by many to be one of Judy Garland's best, Vincent Minnelli's classic, Meet Me in St. Louis. Teenage Esther lives in St. Louis with her family in 1903. The entire family, and the city for that matter, is filled to the brim with excitement as the 1904 1904 World's Fair looms in the distance. Esther and her family, the Smiths, live a comfortable upper-middle-class life, and their days are filled with fun, life lessons, and, of course, music. Meet Me in St. Louis is a unique film because it showcases a year in this family's life broken up into seasonal vignettes that depict everything from a raucous Halloween party, Esther and her sister Rose's search for the man of their dreams, a father who wants nothing more than to support his family, and what life was like at the turn of the century. 
This was the first of five films that Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli would make together, and it's on this film they fell in love. While at the beginning of production, Garland made it no secret that she had no interest whatsoever in doing this film, and she had no interest in playing another teenage character, because she had done that a couple dozen times before (laughs) that. I think she had made 15 films before this. And she's only 21, 22 years old. However... She has gone on record as saying that not only is it now one of her favorite films that she's ever made, but it was the first time she felt beautiful on screen. The film would also go on to be nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Color Cinematography, Best Musical Score, and Best Song. Margaret O'Brien, who played Tootie, was also recognized by the National Board of Review and was given an acting award for her work in the picture. Meet Me in St. Louis is based on a collection of short stories by Sally Benson entitled 5135 Kensington, directed by Vincent Minnelli from a script by Irving Brecher, or I think it's Brecker, and Fred F. Finkelhoff. The film was photographed in Technicolor by George Folsey. Music for the film is credited to George Stoll, and it stars Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, Mary Astor, Lucille Bremer, Joan Carroll, Tom Drake, and Leon Ames as Mr. Smith. From 1944, this is Meet Me in St. Louis. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Zing, zing, zing went my heart strings From the moment I saw him I fell Meet Me in St. Louis is the tender, romantic story of the most popular young beauty of the early 1900s, of her crush on the boy next door. Of her lovable, yet at times humorous family. a terrible trailer um on the video on the audio version of the podcast because it's just <laughs> score you're missing all the names you're missing like things it's actually the it's one of the f- few trailers from this time period that it seems to have a narration because normally they're just they're just showing you things on screen yeah. and it's they I always often hate... very like news really like yeah um... i usually hate showing like whenever we do an old movie like this i love being able to talk about these old movies but like i've created a precedence for myself ourselves <laughs> that we need to have something introducing the film right and sometimes these old trailers kind of suck so sometimes i'll i'll, I'll try to find a modernized trailer because some people will They'll cut do that a recut and, yeah there was one um, we did in season one where the the trailer was i think it was like a uh horror movie 
It was Black Christmas. What is that the one where the trailer <laughs> yeah. was just kind of like Screams sounds and, and ah, yeah. <laughs> it is heavy breathing and creepiness. With no like explanation as to what you're listening to or what <laughs> it was very bizarre. I looked up multiple trailers and that was the best one. <laughs> Uh, wow, we're referencing Black Christmas a lot here. Today. Yes, we are. A sip of coffee for the working man. A sip of coffee for the working man. Uh, no, it's actually since I always uh, reference The Simpsons, there's a moment in The Simpsons um, where they make a movie about Mr. Burns, <laughs> and um, I'm trying to see if I can find the clip because <laughs> now that i can do that um he, they made a movie about mr burns and um there's a scene in the movie where he falls off of a horse simple villages i promise you i will close plates in america and bring work here viva senor burns viva viva <laughs> we did 20 takes and that was the best one <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't enable myself just to add more Simpsons into this show. Right. Um, we'll, we'll add it in post. <laughs> yes, we'll add it in post. Um, so we often discuss um, the level of note-taking that we did on, yes. on an episode, and I started to take notes. I started um, to take notes myself. But, but comedically stopped early on, resulting in <laughs> that the catch-up. Okay, so... Okay, well, before we even talk about what you thought about the film, yeah, or do you want? No, do you let's want to jump get to the ketchup right into the ketchup. Okay, that was ketchup. When did they say it was? <laughs> that ketchup? was they did early on um, in that scene. They established that it was ketchup. Um, and How? I, what the fuck did they say? Then say it was ketchup. I don't remember this. Best ketchup we ever made, Katie. Too sweet. Mr. Smith likes it on the sweet side. Well, oh, men like it on the sweet side. Too sweet, Miss Smith. I have also pulled up an article um, from Smithsonian Magazine titled "Whatever Happened to Homemade Ketchup?" That reference that, that and the impetus for this. Uh, it's an article by Jesse Rhodes, and begins with, "I recently sat down at home for a repeated viewing of the movie musical Meet Me in St. Louis." A 1944 Julie Garland showcase that looks at American life at the turn of the 20th century by way of the comfortably middle-class Smith family. And I'm going to paraphrase here. After the song, we're brought into their kitchen where the household's matriarch and the housekeeper are in the final stages of making ketchup, arguing amongst themselves and the rest of the family as to what's wrong with the latest batch. See, okay. I don't remember them ever saying they were making ketchup, but I remember, especially because, like, okay... I started trying to figure. Okay, it's like okay, that what is that red stuff? It's like is it tomato soup? Um, for one point, I was like maybe it's borscht. <laughs> and I was like that's a that's a more red-ish soup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I kept trying to figure out what it was. And then like later on, they're like, oh, we're having corned beef for dinner. It's like ah, maybe it's sauerkraut or some sort of ketchup because they're talking. Is it too sour? Is it too <laughs> sweet? It's fucking ketchup. Yeah. And, and, and why and why yeah. do we show them making ketchup because they don't eat anything that requires ketchup. <laughs> And then the soup they end up eating is red, so are they just eating fucking right? ketchup? I'm so pissed I, off about this. I, I want to come back to the soup, but I believe they actually identify it as ketchup as they're early on in the scene when the maid is saying, um, oh, men like their ketchup really sweet. 
and she oh, and she is arguing to make it uh, more on the sour side or the you know the savory side. Um, and, and, and I guess the, both of those descriptors describe ketchup, but I've never thought of ketchup as being sour or overly sweet. I just well, I I think that is a result, and this we will I'll post this article to the site to to our Facebook page, but it it actually kind of goes into the history of ketchup being more of a make in your house condiment and how it now it's like a, a homogenized thing where we just go buy everybody buys the same brand of ketchup uh, wow. but at, at the end of that scene too they do start pouring it into like bottles too i do remember that and i was like why are they bottling their tomato soup because it's also a weird color <laughs> but then they do like when the dinner scene comes later that day they are served soup that looks like they just poured the ketchup into a bowl yeah and they do call that soup but I'm like, are they just drinking ketchup or like you know, ladling spoon ladling ketchup? Is ketchup different today? You know, is it used? Does it have a slightly different culinary purpose today as it did in 1944? Um, it, it it stirred up a lot in me. <laughs> yeah, like, and I was so confused by that. And but I do think that that we couldn't have seen them eat something that requires ketchup just because then that that scene just feels really strange here here's where i think the the magic of that scene is and the purpose of that scene is with every character coming and tasting that ketchup and weighing in on it it becomes like a rorschach test for that character what does that it it helps define the character's personalities in that they're all tasting the same thing and reacting differently to it so the the character that thinks that it's too sour, what's that say about them? The character that thinks it's too sweet, what does that say about them? The one that what does thinks it say that about it's the too grandfather thick, who thinks the it's too thick, wrong. right? Yeah, like I I would like to now that I've seen the movie, go back to that scene and go, I could see him as a this ketchup's too thick kind of guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. There, it actually reminds me now that you've been talking about that. There's a movie called Hard Times with Charles Bronson, and. I, I, there was a scene at the beginning of this film that actually made me want to go write an article, an essay, which I did, um, but it has never gotten published anywhere. Uh, there is a scene of Charles Bronson and, oh no, I clicked on something by accident. There's a scene of Charles Bronson and James Coburn eating oysters at the beginning of the film. This is your, your food article. Yes. Yes. Yep. Uh, for those who did not read my food article, because there's nowhere to see it, uh, there's a scene with uh, James Coburn at the beginning of this film, as I just specified, eating oysters. And he meets uh, Charles Bronson's character, and they, they first encounter each other while at a bare-knuckle fight. James Coburn is a manager for bare-knuckle fights, and he's realized that... Um, he needs a new fighter because this fighter got the shit beat out of him. In walks uh, Charles Bronson. James Coburn is in there eating oysters. He's at an oyster bar. Um, I actually found the scene, but I don't know if I necessarily want to just play a whole scene from a movie we're not discussing. Um, they, they're they're eating oysters, and James Coburn is you know ripping open the oysters, and he's got all these different sauces and hot sauces and things that he's but that he's doing to to change the taste of the oysters and they're having a conversation yeah about you know where where charles bronson is essentially like hey i'm your next fighter and without even being offered one um bronson just takes one of his oysters breaks it open just slides in his mouth and just eats it 
That piece of business tonight, you said enough. It happens all the time. Help yourself. Thanks. I suppose you've been down the long, hard road. Who hasn't? Jail. You a policeman? Just like to know where a man comes from, that's all. And I and I wrote an entire essay about how I thought that described their characters perfectly. Yep. And goes into my whole thesis of that is that food is character. Yep. It's character development. So I can see that. Now I want that, to rewatch the beginning of Meet Me in St. Louis. Once you get, once you accept that it's ketchup and you know what they're doing, then maybe you can go back and appreciate the... Because I was too. I'm like, they keep, they just keep talking about the ketchup. Are they are they drinking bowls of ketchup? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So we've talked about the ketchup. Nick, what did you think of this movie? I was really surprised with how funny it was. Oh my god, me too. I, I was laughing through the whole thing, and not like funny for its time. There are a lot of films from this era that I'm like, okay, I can see how that was funny. <clears throat> it was surprisingly modern. The, yeah. The, the humor was surprisingly modern. I felt like like it clearly existed in, in its time, where... Um, uh, gender roles and and norms and societal norms were, were are very of their time, but then this family seemed oddly modern within that setting, um, and with the exception of like an unfortunately racist song, which is you know, uh, Raina and I decided we needed a offshoot of this podcast where we watch old movies and decide like how racist they are <laughs> which song was racist uh it's when they're they have the big party and then the duet between 2d and <clears throat> um uh, okay I, remember the scene. I guess um, i wasn't listening to the words it's 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 a more subtle it, it's not like holiday Inn with like severe blackface <laughs> yeah. through like two-thirds of the film um but it's more of the um, like nativism kind of like. Oh, that's fair. Um, track. I was but, trying to figure out the entire movie how you how you dance the hoochie coochie. To be honest with you, <laughs> it's not a dance. <laughs> oh. Um. So with some un- unfortunate, you know, things of its time, I found it surprisingly modern. I found it really yes. funny, and goddamn, Tootie's character had me in stitches the entire time. She was just like these one-off lines, like, um, uh, I, I hope I did a hunting night for Christmas. That like, yes. it's, they're these throwaway lines. Well, that... it was both Tootie and her sister. They both had a yeah. lot of uh, crazy lines in I'm going to bring all my movie. dolls to New York. I'm going to have to dig them all up from the cemetery. <laughs> yes. and But then it's never, it, like, it's so funny because it doesn't get a reaction from anyone. It's just like, that's Tootie. <laughs> yeah, or there was that one, or like uh, it was the other sister, which I cannot remember her name at the moment. The, um, the one that's older than Tootie but younger than yes. Esther. Yes, um, where um, I'm trying to see. I'm, I actually have quotes from the movie pulled up, and uh, I was trying to see if I can find it. Where she where she comes in and she's like, "Well, have you seen my cat?" And the maid's like, "Yeah, I kicked your cat down the stairs." And she goes, oh, "I will slice your throat as you sleep and tie you between two horses and have it rip you apart." 
And then, holy fuck. and then clearly the maid has heard this like a uh, hundred times because she's like, yeah, good luck with that. All right. Yes. Oh, it's like, and then she just starts, you know, singing Meet Me in St. Louis. And I was like, holy fuck. And like both these children like were like, they, they were the funniest part of the movie, but they were also extremely pissing me off as the movie called <laughs> on. Oh, but, uh. So, yeah, I was actually surprised by how modern it was, too, for 1944. Yeah. <clears throat> and actually, one thing this film does really well that a lot of musicals annoy me with was traditionally musicals were up to this point, and even for a long time after this film, were always made as a showcase for the singing and dancing of the lead yeah. talent. What I thought this film did very well for me was the music felt like it was part of the scene. It didn't feel like there was a break in story for the song. All the songs felt like they were there to further the story, further the emotions that the characters are feeling. And they even felt like they incorporated bits of dialogue where, you know, like I, I appreciate that, you know, as the emotions built, they would sing a song as opposed to like, let's interrupt everything that's going on right now and just do a very complicated musical number. It, the, Those are the musicals I don't enjoy as much. With There's always exceptions, yeah. but this is definitely the type of musical I get behind more where the song feels like the logical progression of the plot as thin as this plot in this film was. Um, so I appreciated that. Yeah, I, I could see... The, the party that they had, which featured like three different songs, I think, like... It wasn't the the song didn't break from reality. It was part of the reality. Mm. Yeah. And when Judy Darlin is singing "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas," like I, it felt natural for her to be singing to her to to make her feel better. Maybe not super, you know, maybe not hyper realistic, but closer than <laughs> say like um, uh, uh, West Side Story, where mm-hmm. they're like gang fighting as they sing and dance with you know. Eight years of jazz as their background. Jazz, jazz, jazz. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I, I, I really appreciated that. Um, I will say I didn't like the movie as much as many other people did. Uh, and actually, I just watched. I also crossed another film off my shameless very recently. Mm-hmm. I had just seen uh, Singing in the Rain for the first oh, time. Oh, that is also on mine. Um, I had just seen that, and we could always do an episode on that if you'd like at some yeah. point. Because, um, but because it's uh, our our house guest Emma, it's her one of her favorite movies. And funny enough, that that movie I, I enjoyed more, even though it's it's actually it's like a, it's almost like a weird combination of the two ideologies of musical, where there's times where it felt like the singing was definitely part of the scene, but since the film is about people in film who sing and dance sometimes the big musical numbers would it's like it had this weird combination of these two ideologies kind of like how um, white christmas uses yeah music. and just yeah and despite the fact that it's traditionally the type of musical that i don't like as much i actually enjoyed that film more than i enjoyed meet me in st louis simply because um while it was probably pretty dynamic at the time i i wasn't really into the vignette style of filmmaking um where i just did, like i didn't care about what was happening there was I, to me it felt like there was no um i guess very little plot it, and yeah. there was also very yes. little consequences behind anything like i it was so kind of narratively void 
Yeah, like uh, the DVD that I watched for Meet Me in St. Louis had a introduction by Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli's daughter Liza Minnelli. Yeah. Um, and she introduces the film and talks about it, and she says that Louis B. Mayer, who was in charge of MGM at the time, his problem with the film was uh, was that he couldn't describe it. Um, so Vincent Minnelli came in and pretty much said, "Hey, I want to make this film called Meet Me in St. Louis." And he's like, okay, well, what happens in it? It's like, well, it's a story about a family. Well, okay, what happens then? <laughs> he's like, well, the father just realizes that you know he want he needs to he wants to move to New York for his job. Oh, so that's the, the that's the the cusp. That's the the emotional you know turning point. No, because <laughs> that doesn't happen till like, yeah. So the he's end like, of so the they don't they, they don't leave. No. <laughs> And, like, he's just having a hard time explaining this fucking film to him. And Liza pretty much, you know, now that the film's a classic, it's very easy to say this. But she's like, the thing that, you know, my father was having a hard time. And it's funny. She calls him daddy all the time in in the interview. It's kind of sweet. She's like, the thing my father had a hard time, daddy had a hard time with was explain to him this this other factor that came out in the end. It was like, well, yeah, that's because the film's now a classic. So, like, you, you can't explain that, like... That little oomph that <laughs> happens in the film, and there there was enough that I liked in the film. It was every, there was so much that it was doing well. It just doesn't feel like, feel like a film I want to return to very often because like, yeah, these vignettes did a good job of getting getting me to know these characters, but nothing happens to them. Yeah, in I, a way that's interesting. And I, I I don't want to cut you off. I just want to get this thought out. Yeah, yeah. I like films where nothing happens. Like I I love the movie Dazed and Confused, but that film is does go really hard on characters and situations where this film just kind of like doesn't it you would have to really want the musical part i I think for like for for people who are big fans of musicals they would get that other thing that makes it so that it's okay that there's not a lot going on plot wise where Mm -hmm. um for for you and to a certain degree for me too that doesn't satiate that need for something um i think the like it starts out as this unrequited love story kind of between Mm -hmm. her and the neighbor um and and then later on shifts into this thing about moving to new york and i'm okay that Mm -hmm. like they don't i think that's right yeah i think i think it's like it kind of feels like two different stories, which it kind of makes sense how you said it's based on a series of short stories. Yeah, um, I almost feel like that New York thing should have come earlier. Should have come had earlier. Cross those stories over so they're telling one story rather than two or three separate stories. Yeah, because I feel like if that would have come earlier, then you have that hanging over the entire head of the film. Yes, and then there's tension between the girls and the and. Oh, everyone! I I kind of I kind of forget they have a son because he looks so much like the neighbor. <laughs> well, they um, also don't introduce him right away, and then there's just no. this weird kind of older guy yeah. sitting at the dinner table, and it's not until yeah. the very end of this long, elaborate dinner scene that they even hint at who he is. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, so like I, I feel like especially because like the, I feel like it would have been so easy to introduce that beginning of the film and for listeners at home since Vinny always seems to bug me when i'm doing this show i have him kenneled downstairs so if you hear oh distant wailing it's not ghosts it's my dog um 
I feel like because the father came home in such a shit mood <laughs> when he was introduced and he's he t- saying the daughters are screeching and everything. <laughs> I feel like that would have been a good place to introduce. Like maybe he's pissed because he doesn't want to move, but he wants to do what's best for the family. And then he knows it's going to piss them. Like it would have been so easy to introduce that. Instead, he just comes home pissed <laughs> off for no reason. He has a, he had a bad day and we don't know why. He just wants to take a fucking bath. It's There's a lot I, going I, on. I think the father figure's character is kind of a key to to my feeling of how modern it was because he kind of represented the like traditional family unit of that time the traditional gender role like he's providing first off also he is providing for that entire family plus able to hire a maid in that big ass house even though st louis is you know they they establish like that if they move to new york they'll live in a tenement that's fine but the fact that they can afford all that on one dude's salary is pretty freaking bonkers. <laughs> yeah, and like when I, according to places I've looked up, they are upper middle class. And I was like, <laughs> I like when they're like, oh, they don't have homes, they don't have houses in New York. Not for people who live like us. I'm like you guys live like kings. <laughs> right. You make your own homemade ketchup, and you have a maid. Um, you but, have your own Alice. <laughs> but because of how the rest of the family kind of like he'll come home and be like i'm king of the castle and we'll eat when i say we eat and they're all like yeah okay like i think that's kind of part of what made it feel more modern to me yeah i also love to like they 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 kind of kind of very slightly skirted that the fact that they're not rich uh, when during the corned beef scene, when he was like, "In this household, we 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 we, we slice, we slice the corned corn beef. beef. We don't and shave the, it." And Katie, who just has no fucks for anyone, just being like, "I thought you said you wanted this beef for two meals," and he's like, "I don't care." And, um, and they like, I think, given again the context of the time, um, I think that was a. The, the father's real thought that process and his journey through here is he's he's middle class wanting to be upper middle or or wealthy yeah. and this is his opportunity to do that for his family um mm-hmm. and and that play, and, and, I, and i feel like for the move to new york and and then maybe like i would have felt a little bit more for him sorry there's like dust particles it's like <laughs> ooh, stuff to catch uh i would have felt more for him and maybe because like I don't, you know, I get it's a different time period. You know, I, I like to poke fun at their upper middle class based on how giant their house was and everything. But, like, you know, I feel like if we could have just gotten a little bit more reality out of the situation of, like, yeah, he said he wants to give his his family everything they deserve, which is cool. But, you know, they're living like kings. I wish, you know, he would maybe just had a couple comments being like, hey, you know, I'm not made of money or, you know, like we're barely getting by or I've got five fucking kids or something <laughs> just so I, you know, that way when he brought in the whole thing, it's like, hey, I'm doing this for us that maybe I would have like felt it because it just kind of felt like, well, you're doing fine. Right. Why do you need to go to New York? They seem to have everything. They have these giant flowy dresses that kind of look like curtains and perfect snowmen outside. Right. And I think there's know, just a bit of cognitive... throwing like, shit at people. I think there are some of those lines in there, but it's just there's so much cognitive dissonance, dissonance between what they're saying and how their house and lifestyle looks to us 
and how we That's understand fair. because there's that there's a great line that that made me tackle where um uh rose i think the eldest daughter is like oh yep. i don't i don't care for money it's it's such a filthy thing and the dad's like well you certainly spend enough of it <laughs> So, I'm glad he's, I missed that line because <laughs> me, Amanda, and Emma were all like, "Well, yeah, it's easy for someone who has money to yes. to fucking hate it." Yes, I and I I think I think the lines are there. Yeah, it's really the the visual what we're saying, and and I can't put it into the context of its time because I don't know what it was like then. But based on our understanding of money and house size and and city living, as we understand it today it's in contrast to the things that they're saying so mm-hmm. um <laughs> no i i, I, I agree i know and like and like and honestly a lot of the the dialogue is what i found myself really enjoying in this film because it was very well written like i love uh near the beginning of the film when we first meet tootie and she's hanging out with the ice man <laughs> And uh, he's like, he's like, I love me this town. She's like, it's a city, and he um, and and he's like, oh, I love living in St. Louis. It's like it's St. Louis. Well, I've got a friend who got my, got a brother who's who's spelled the same way, and he pronounces it Louis. Well, is he a city? No. Is is he a saint? No. It's just the way he says it. So the dialogue. And I was like, oh my god, this is, movie's so well written. The dialogue is the star of this. Like the dialogue yes. is what makes this film so goddamn good and then like what's so impressive about the the actress margaret o'brien who plays tootie is she couldn't read she was she six. says she was sick she couldn't read she didn't she couldn't memorize her lines so her parents just kind of like helped him figure helped her figure it out and i to this day i'm always wondering like because like i i learned something interesting about the the peanut shorts recently okay that um, so, um, Bill Melendez, who directed all the, almost all of those peanut shorts, he worked with real children yep. to make these and he never gave the kids their scripts. He never had them memorize lines. Cause he's like, no one wants to hear kids reciting lines. Yeah. So he instead, when like the, who, the actor who plays Linus is doing his lines, Bill Melendez would pretty much be in there. It's like, here's what you're saying. And here's exactly how you say it's. And then, you know, anything, and however it comes out is how we're going to go with it. But, like, he kind of gave them, like, emotionally how he wanted them to deliver it. And if there's any comedic beats or anything like that. And I'm now wondering, it's like, how much of Tootie was, like, the the kid? And how much of it was, like, the people around her being like, oh, say it like this. Say it like this. I'm just, I'm kind of curious by that. Right. He tried to kill me. Margaret O'Brien was six when she played the role of precocious Tootie Smith. Today, she is 82. But her memories of making the film are still sharp especially of her co-star, Judy Garland. Working with Judy was wonderful. She was actually a very happy person. She loved playing jump rope with the kids on the set, and she loved kind of being a kid, you know? The film was directed by Vincent Minnelli. That's him giving Margaret O'Brien some direction. But it was Minnelli's relationship with Judy Garland that took her life in a new direction. This happened to be a very happy time for Judy because she met Mr. Minnelli and they had a little romance on the set. And of course, a year later, Liza was born. So uh, if it hadn't been for Meet Me in St. Louis, we may have missed all wonderful performances of Liza Minnelli. Oh, me, me. And I don't think many people realized 
that he did a lot of the antiques on the sets. He would even check the doorknobs. He did everything. If it hadn't been for Vincent Minnelli, there would not have been a Meet Me in St. Louis. So Tootie is is quite the precocious little character, isn't she? Yes, she is a little shit. Okay, I will say. (laughs) um, I... She had some of the best lines in the movie, but she pissed me off so bad later on in the film. Um, she, the scene specifically where she came home with the bloody nose and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, when she came home with the bloody nose and the black eye and everything, and she was like, oh, the boy next door hit me. Um, tried to kill me. Tried to kill threw, me. Threw me in front of a trolley. And, you know, then Judy Garland goes and beats the fuck out of him. And I bit him. Yeah, that's my favorite part. I, I bit him. I bit him. <laughs> and, and then when they finally find out what happened, then, yes. like, they try and be mad, but they're, like, they're like, laughing. Oh, you're just so cute. And then, like, and it's not like, okay, it's not like Tootie was confused and, you know, there was a commotion and then like he got in the way or something like banged her or whatever. She just lied. Straight up fucking lied and said that, he, you know, even though he was protecting them, that he hit her. And then... And then they just there's no consequences whatsoever. And, and and on top of that, like she fucking stuffed a dress full of leaves and put it on the trolley track hoping to knock... To derail the trolley. To like, de-fucking-rail de- the trolley. Everything up until that point I can kind of play off as, uh, you're, you're going to be in trouble for this, but kid antics, until the trolley part. And one of them is like, you could have killed like 12 people. <laughs> I I just, like, that and, annoyed me so bad. And that entire, like, Halloween, like, bonfire in the street we're gonna kill oh all the neighbors. It came out of nowhere. First, it's like this: like we're gonna get husbands, and I'm gonna make him propose to me, and we're gonna eat ketchup and cake. And, yep. We, and, and then all of a did. sudden, it's like a riot of six to twelve year olds, like getting like, and they didn't explain when they're saying we murdered eight of our neighbors until later know, that like murder like, is throwing flour in their faces. But you have like this crazy bonfire that no one's like upset about. And then like, Oh, even before that, even before what? that, even before that. So when they're talking to Katie, the maid, the maid and, and Katie's like, Agnes, I thought you were a drunken ghost. Uh, and Agnes is like, but I am. Tootie's a horrible ghost, and I'm a terrible drunken ghost. And Tootie says, she was murdered in a den of thieves, and I died a broken heart, and I've never been bur- buried. Bur- I've never been buried. Buried. I've never been buried. Whatever. I've never been buried. buried because buried. buried. Thank you. I'm reading it. I've never been buried because everyone's scared to come near me. I'm like, what the fuck, child? Well, and that, like, the burying all of her dolls in, like, a doll cemetery. Like, this girl is comedically written in a really effed up way. Yes. And and that's, like, really funny until the moments where it's really not. <laughs> yes. But then they never also, like, when it's too much and it's no longer funny, they're still, like, kind of like, 
<laughs> Boy, I really shouldn't be laughing at this. Oh well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's yeah, like it's Tootie is just is a fucking strange little character. Um, but no, that entire Halloween sequence is like, is this just what Halloween kids did on that, Halloween? They I, just fucking. That was the same thing I was going through. Like, how much of this is that? Like, what Halloween is for us today is very different, and how much of it is? Oh no, that actually is like really weird. I I don't have that anchor to to know. Yeah, and then like when they're all like, oh, do you have your flower to throw it in the face of anyone? I brought the my door? own. And then, like, so, like, when Tootie came home crying, I was like, he, oh, he almost murdered me. Like, what did John do? Like, oh, he punched me in the face, or he, he hit me. And I was like, yeah, because he probably opened the door and you threw flour in his face, and he probably, he probably, like, socked you. You had it coming, child. <laughs> and that's not at all what happened, but it's like, and I, actually, I was ready to defend him. <laughs> I actually think it's kind of, it, it's not as bad as it felt to us. I think it was told from the perspective of the children almost problematically effectively. Like mm-hmm. because it felt when when once you once they do the reveal of what like killing the neighbors actually is, it's like, okay, I probably played games like you know, I I was never brave enough to like toilet paper somebody's house or at a car. But like it's really not that different. It's how they framed it that made it feel so messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's a little... Here we go. Yeah, well, it, this is only the end part, but I just think this entire part sequence is funny. So I'm just gonna... I'm, I'm not gonna mute our mic since it's so short. Yeah! Judy's the most horrible! Yeah! And then her face. Yeah. I am the most horrible. I did it! Here, throw that on the fire. I'm the most horrible! I'm the most And you have the fucking giant bonfire in the middle of the road. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the what? biggest thing is that we're adults watching something that's told really effectively well from the perspective of children in the middle of yes. a movie that's not told from the perspective of children. Yeah, it's very um, strange. And that's why it felt so disjointed and, and yes. absurd. Huh. <sighs> So there's there's one more thing that I'd like to discuss about this film, and then we have to, we also have to talk about the Christmas aspect. Of that it is too. actually the point, <laughs> or oh, that that oh. is the the one more thing that I'd like to talk about. Um, we we may or may not, depending on our schedules, you know, every year we get su- both of us get super busy at this time of year, and we're always surprised by it. We're like, oh. The pot, like, we're both so crazy. It happens to us every year. Like, at some point, we need to be like, we know that it's going to get crazy, and let's do the best we can. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. we're both doing great. We're both handling, you know, we're we're all doing our best. Um, but we may or may not, I, we, we have hopes to do one more episode this mm-hmm. month. So, and, and this will kind of, I don't want to give too much of the conversation away um but but we can at least start we'll tease it what are your feelings on whether or not meet me in st louis is a christmas movie oh so that's tough because normally so i'm not under the assumption that every movie that's set on christmas is a christmas movie 
but movies that say aren't primarily set on Christmas movies like Miracle on 34th Street. Not Miracle on 34th Street, sorry. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. Oh, both. Uh... Yeah, because uh, It's a Wonderful Life only partially set on Christmas yeah. is a Christmas film. It just kind of ends at Christmas, which is also mm-hmm. true of Meet Me in St. Louis. It's yes. like a year-long build-up to a Christmas moment. Yes, and traditionally, I'm under the opinion that if like it has an iconic Christmas moment or something very Christmassy in it, it counts as a Christmas film. So I would probably say Meet Me in St. Louis. While it's not necessarily a movie I'd want to return to every Christmas, it doesn't hit me the same way that say like a Holiday Inn does or like <laughs> Christmas. Um, I would say that it is a Christmas movie. It is more of a Christmas movie than some other films. Okay. What I about really, you, Nick? I, I, Raina and I were having this conversation as we were watching it, and I loved her response. It was so matter-of-fact, and so like, yeah, isn't this how everybody feels about it? That it just charmed charmed me to death. She goes, yeah, it has a Christmas tree. Every movie that has a Christmas tree is a Christmas movie. <laughs> I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, and don't get me wrong. I've got a list. I've got a running list going on Letterboxd right now. It's called Stealth Christmas Films. It's all films that follow that criteria. If there's a yeah. Christmas tree in it, and it's not necessarily being presented as a Christmas film, that's what it falls under. Or if but, it's being presented as a Christmas film but doesn't have a Christmas tree, sorry, no dice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, so you know, it, it comes. I think ultimately this this conversation and where we are eventually going to take it if we do this future episode, it all spawns from the concept that is Die Hard a Christmas film? Right. Yeah. That's and using Reina, and using Reina's very easy to follow criteria. Like I want to make a map. Right. Does it have a Christmas tree? Yes. Christmas film. No. <laughs> no. Not, not a, a Christmas, Christmas film. <laughs> uh, uh, using Reina's very easy to follow chart, Die Hard one hundred percent is a Christmas yep. film. <laughs> For me, it's not. But and yet, Die Hard theoretically has more of a Christmas base than Meet Me in St. Louis. Yep. And here's, it just doesn't. It just doesn't make me feel Christmassy. Here's where I'm really tempted to get into the whole conversation, but I don't want to take don't all. Don't tempt of the, you, Nick. Right. I don't want to take all the emph- you know all of the meat out of our next episode. So I'm gonna stop myself right there. I will say. In addition to that, that for me, Meet Me in St. Louis, for reasons that I will get into if we do the next episode, does qualify for me as a Christmas movie. And one that that despite issues that I had with the lack of plot and like most of the songs didn't do a whole lot for me, uh, we will be, uh, we have every intention on returning to this film every Christmas in our, in our normal rotation. So, are you going to start doing double features of Meet Me in St. Louis and Family Stone? Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, what we're going to actually do is when that we're going to watch Family Stone, and when that scene comes, we're going to stop that movie, watch Meet Me in St. Louis, and then hit resume on the Family Stone. There you go. That's the way I to actually, go. like, That's... I said that as a joke, but now I kind of want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you should like we should host a public screening of those two films <laughs> and just present it in that way. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> yes. Anyone who's out there listening that wants to make this happen with us, let us know once the world opens up a little bit more. We will 
We will make that happen. Super. So we both are in agreement that we think Meet Me in St. Louis is a Christmas film. And if it would have just been that one moment, I don't know if I would have, but since they had the whole Christmas ball, they had the whole snow, tacking the snowman scene, and they had a couple more things going on, you know, one third or maybe one fourth of the film is a Christmas film. Yeah. Like, through and through. Like, thematically, it it would have been very easy to not, but I, I. was satisfied by at the end when the dad says okay we're not going to go to new york the way that judy darlin's character um says that's the i forget the exact line so i'm paraphrasing but that was the best christmas gift i could have gotten it Mm -hmm. it it starts to bring in christmas themes of and then of gifting and thinking of others um that then pulls it in thematically as a christmas film and then i guess the last thing i'll say defending it as being a christmas film it is the reason we have the song have yourself a merry little christmas yeah it is the first instance of that song and if we wanted to play the scene i do have it pulled up yeah let's do it all right we are gonna if you guys have not look out for the creepy monkeys yes very (laughs) creepy monkeys so if you've not seen meet me in st louis and you've not seen the original use of this song enjoy brings me any toys i'm taking them with me i'm taking all my dolls the dead ones too i'm taking everything of course you are i'll help you pack them myself you don't have to leave anything behind except your snow people of course (laughs) we'd look pretty silly trying to get them on the train wouldn't we
brought to you by the Warner Archives. Yeah. <laughs> Warner Archives, though, seriously, if you guys are uh, physical media collectors, puts out some good shit. Uh, the one that I actually rebought recently through Target.com, surprisingly. You can find Warner Archive print-on-demand DVDs at Target.com, which was Which is strange because they're print-on-demand. Right. Yeah. Um, the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, which is a rarer Rankin and Bass stop-motion animation written by uh, Frank L. Baum. And yep. And if you're also a fan of our early episodes of the show, Nick the Phantom Tollbooth is also is, a Warner Archive yep, title. Yep. yep. Those are the two that I've purchased through there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Warner Archive is a good shit. They they print on they're they're a print on demand service, so you usually end up paying a little bit more for their discs but than not you do anywhere else. No, not unreasonable, but it's a good way for them to go because then they don't they're not just sitting on a shit ton of stuff. I think I spent like fifteen dollars on that and it yeah. was the life and adventures of Santa Claus and Nestor Nestor the Long Eared Donkey together. Uh, my mom um, loves Nestor the Long Eared Donkey. Here's Nestor. It's another one like there's so many Christmas movies where like the I guess it's true of Disney films too, where like the mom dies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, like that's you know an iconic scene. I knew that I knew that scene before I even seen the film. I knew the scene. I didn't know it came from this movie. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that scene came from this movie, but I knew Judy Garland sang that song and the pipes on that girl for being like in twenty one, twenty two years old. Like so and then much like another <laughs> yeah another song that I didn't know came from this movie was the trolley song. <laughs> I don't even know like how I know that song. Like, what I know it from? <laughs> but, Actually, I probably know it from the Simpsons. Okay. To be honest with you, I but probably it is, know it. From... It's like it's in our social consciousness. consciousness. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, and it's and, like you know, and it's, now it's we'll never be song. able to get Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis, uh, out of our heads. No, though I do have to say, I kind of, I think that I want to go back to that, to how that song was, because that song's throughout the movie. Yeah. The way that song is introduced in the film, I think is kind of genius. <laughs> so the well, first time we hear it is when Agnes has just finished swimming and she's just clonking through the house, uh, which I just love the way she's singing. She's singing like a drunken sailor. I just love the way she's singing it. And then, um, and then up, she goes, and then the grandpa is also, is also happens to be singing it. And then I, I didn't get the connection at first. So that actually was the, so that wasn't written for the movie. That was an existing song and it was the theme from the 1904 world's fair. So okay. it's in everyone's consciousness. Right. Which then makes sense later on why the two sisters are singing it because it's the theme song for the fair and they're all excited for it. And then so the it's best like, bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were leading up to the where the dad no, no, walks in. Yes, and the dad <laughs> walks in and just says, stop are your you screeching. S- are you singing that song again? God, everybody, I'm out on the streets. They're singing it. They're, yes. they're, everybody's singing that goddamn song. So the way that they introduce it with, you know, the little girl singing it, and then she goes to the bathroom, wants to use the bathroom, and her grandfather's in the bathroom singing it, and everyone's singing it. And um, I just think it's a genius way to kind of incorporate that song where it doesn't feel like it, where they're dropping everything to sing. It's just they just happen to be singing. Yeah. So and I actually think it's kind of a genius opening to the film. I, I also really liked how the dad's reaction kind of all of a sudden made it make sense that they were that there were people on the streets and, you know, they're cutting and it's like everybody's singing the song. And when the dad says that, it's kind of like, it takes it out of like 
musical world where everybody's singing everything and it's like okay there's a reason why they're all doing it and mm-hmm. not everybody's super on board with it being sung constantly <laughs> yeah um i also love i just need to point this out that i love that so they're all riding carriages and they have a little piece of concrete on their sidewalk that's put there just so they can get off the carriage <laughs> i just love that it's yeah. just a goofy little detail what uh one thing that i find really charming about our house is there is an actual hitching post out in the front of our house that was used to like tie up the horse because uh, mm-hmm. it was built in 1885 so like it still has the original hitching post which is just hilarious that is great we tie our uh, cars was- up to it <laughs> I was looking at the notes, and one thing I thought was really funny. So Sally Benson, who wrote the original stories, the 1531 Kensington, okay. which were then put into a collection called Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh, okay. Um, So when MGM, so Louis B. Mayer, bought the, the rights to the story, he thought, I just find this really funny, The thought he thought the story, the original stories were too sappy and lacked drama. So he hired Irving uh, Brecher and Fred Finkelhoff to come in and punch it up. And I was like, wait, they were sappy before? <laughs> and they lacked trauma before? Because <laughs> that's like my biggest complaint about them. <laughs> Actually, not the sappiness. I don't give a shit about that. But like, I was like, where's the drama? <laughs> well, he, he really effectively brought it down. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, one thing I also love, too. So like I said, I, I, I said this at the beginning of the, uh, the episode. Judy Garland didn't want to do this film. She thought the character of um, Esther was juvenile. And she's like, I've done this before. But she goes, I think she had just divorced her first husband. She's like, I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm yeah. sick of doing this shit. <laughs> um, and, but Vincent Minnelli really wanted her. And, um, yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently when she was the first couple days on set she was just she's delivering everything just like like just really kind of like the way that she said she bit him like i imagine she's doing that the entire time just doing it really big and um tongue-in-cheek and eventually apparently vincent Minnelli had to pull her off to the side and be like okay i get it you don't want to do this but i need you to believe what's going on because if you don't believe what's happening and you don't bring more to this this film is never gonna work and apparently she was so like awestruck that someone would talk to her that way because she's kind of a big fucking star at this time. Okay. That she was like, okay, fine, you know. And she, she kind of toned it down and brought more to it, and um, you know, made a classic. And Eliza Minnelli also said at the beginning of the introduction that, um, apparently, it was no secret that Vincent Minnelli was was into Judy Garland because he just the way that he would frame her he was always framing her in in almost like uh in actual frames like whether it be window frames or 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 mirrors and just the way that he was shooting her that he was even before he realized that he was interested in her that you know so so it's um rick grimes character from love actually uh filming pretty much uh, yeah like the wedding video that's just all her face and creepy Mm slow-mo oh Mm -hmm. that's the director's cut that's really not for your eyes and then like another interesting tidbit i found that vincent minnelli says happened but margaret o'brien has debunked it but i think it's fun when you have two conflicting stories (laughs) 
uh, Vincent Minnelli says that he working with Margaret O'Brien was great because she always had her parents there, but she said sometimes getting the emotion out of her was tough. So that he, you know, there was a scene where he had to direct her when she was like beating the shit out of the snowman and everything. Yeah. And, and he was like, well, how do I get her to cry? And he's like, well, what we've been doing, this is what her parents have supposedly said, what we've been doing is there's a dog that she that she owns that she's really fond of. We've been telling that's her that someone wants to hurt and harm her dog until she starts crying. <laughs> so fucked up. And he's like, really? <laughs> what? And he's like, that's what you have to do. And he's like, well, you're going to hurt heart your dog and she's just like really and then like he keeps playing it up and everything and then she went and beat the fuck out of those snowmen and then it cut i watched a documentary about this and they hard cut to margaret o'brien she's like that's such so full of shit <laughs> that, is that what he told you he's like no he's like i had a contest with another actress an older actress uh who worked for mgm at the time we had a crying contest who could do the more convincing tears and uh so they're always trying to show each other up and whenever um she had to do a crying scene like that apparently that other actress would come up to her and be like oh do we need to get the makeup artist to put fake tears on you and it is out of spite would make herself cry which is also a great story uh, i hope that both are true and i know and, and it's yeah like you said the the conflicting stories and where the truth actually lies is is a fun little uh, yeah it's it's a this is a bastardization of a john ford quote but essentially (laughs) it was when you have when you have the truth and the legend print the legend (laughs) yeah yep So, Nick, was there anything else you wanted to talk about with Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis? Uh, I I don't think so. I think, um, again, to, to summarize what I said in the beginning, over again, resummarize, restate, mm-hmm. um, repetitive, redundant. Uh, it, it was a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be, and that, for me, is what will bring me back to this film. Is yes, the, it was definitely a lot of fun. The, the humor um, and the, the writing of the dialogue. And um, I don't really have anything else to uh, to say, so I guess we will do our sign off, and then I have a quote from Vincent Minnelli that I kind of like. Ooh, so, yeah. oh, uh, um, be- before that wrap up, there is one more thing that I'd like to say. What's that? Um, I always get a little, um, you know, it, it's the time of the year for reflection and and happy mm-hmm. thoughts. You know, post Thanksgiving, pre Christmas. And I just want to tell you again how much I appreciate doing this podcast with you and how much fun that I have had over the last, what, four years. Four years. We're going into season five. <laughs> um, how not not just for – there's getting to see films that I never would have seen otherwise, which was kind mm-hmm. of part of the initial concept of this. Um, yeah. which I really appreciate, but getting to have like regular conversations with my best friend is really fucking cool. Yeah. And like, it's, it, it, I feel the same way. Like, uh, cause I watch so many movies anyways, but sometimes you just kind of need that inciting incident to push you off your couch and get you to hit play. Um, cause there's, you know, I've always known about meet me in St. Louis. I knew this movie existed. I just... And I knew it was a movie my mom liked, but I just I never really had anything point me to go see it. Same way I felt about Gone with the Wind, and even to an extent, The Godfather. I just yeah. I just told myself I had no interest in The Godfather, and I ended up really liking it. Um, but having someone to talk to, as you said, is is realistically the biggest thing about it. Because how often, more often than not, you know, like I'll I'll finish a movie, 
And a lot of times I'll usually end up watching them alone just because I have a little more time than Amanda does. And I'll be like, well, that was good. Or, you know, that wasn't good. What have you? And I just, well, on to the next thing. And, right. you know, sometimes it's like, it's fun to not only ruminate on these things, but since I'm such a, a big researcher, I like to, like, have an outlet. go in and, you know, if I can just find out interesting things about it and find out more about the world and what was going on around the time and even though a quarter of it doesn't even come out when we talk about it i just i like having that out there and i like a reason to yeah because i could just easily like oh i just watched me in st louis let me go through some books and everything and try to find everything i can but it's without having a purpose to do it sometimes it's it's not as easy right yep cool all right what's that quote hit hit us with the quote hit me with your best quote do 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 why don't you hit me with your best quote so the quote from Vincent Minnelli is, a picture, in this case he means a movie, a picture that sticks with you is made up of hundred or so little things. And it's, it's short and sweet, but I yeah. kind of like it. And he yeah. said, you know, he personally believes that is why Meet Me in St. Louis is stuck with people. Because yeah. there's a hundred or so just little things throughout the film that really stuck with people. And Wait, that's why it's a classic. And it is the explanation for why, even though it's kind of, as we were saying, as we were describing as kind of void of of a storyline of narrative of drama why this movie still works it's it's all the little things that you watch it for not necessarily in this case the big overarching story yeah so nick i think that's all i've got all right um maybe we'll see everyone again one more time before the year is up and uh if in the meantime we have two words for you watch watch movies, movies. <laughs> yeah Let's get out of here. <laughs> the Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below.